the one big problem I had with Justice League was actually that it was really two movies, right? Like, it was very obvious which ones were the Snyder bits and which ones were the Joss Whedon bits, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay, so the Joss Whedon bits kind of bug me for two reasons. The first reason being that, obviously, this is no longer true, but Joss Whedon had been known to create strong female characters in all his shows and, and movies, right? Yeah, that was always his reputation. Right. But you know the gag uh, in the movie where the Flash ends up lying on top of Wonder Woman? Yeah. And he's kind of all awkward about it? That is the same exact gag with Black Widow in The Avengers. And and I can't count. I can't remember. But it was like at least four or five scenes where it was just like an upskirt of Gal Gadot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... And so, like, any person who claims himself to be a feminist has that gag where, like, the guy's on top of the girl and, like, accidentally, like, fondles her and then is really embarrassed about it. Yeah. And then and then has, like, the gratuitous upskirt shots. To me, you're just, you're just a blowhard. <laughs> you're so far removed from a, being a feminist. It really was tough for me to laugh at some of the jokes because I felt they were very Whedon-esque. The theater I was in, it was sold out but it didn't draw a lot of laughs. And I think that's how you know the jokes didn't really stick. They were kind of juvenile. Yeah. Crass. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of it a lot of it is on uh, the Flash's head because he's such a token comic relief character. But on that note, let's start the show. Please listen carefully. Welcome to a new episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast. This time on the show, we're going to be diving into, as you've already heard, Justice League, the new Warner Brothers blockbuster extravaganza featuring the first ever team up of some of comic book fans' favorite characters. So Jason and I will be talking about that and how it's going to shape the the rest of the franchise. Then we'll start talking about the big news over the Amazon Lord of the Rings TV series. They just finalized some details on that uh, over the past week. There's some exciting stuff in there, but obviously fans have uh, just as much reason to be uh, wary about what's going on. Uh, So we'll touch on that. And then we may also get into a little bit of news about uh, the latest Tarantino movie deal. Maybe a little bit of Denis Villeneuve's work in the run-up to the new Dune movie. But coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow, and joining me from Vancouver is my co-host, Jason Chen. How's it going? Good, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Uh, but yeah, we were uh, back to that old Justice League thing. Yeah, um, we were... Okay, let's start from the top, though, okay? Okay. So, so you know how it starts with the fan footage of Superman? Yes, yeah, it's sort of like a vertical video okay. iPhone thing. Yeah, yeah. Was that a scene where his mustache was CG'd? Almost possibly, and I didn't... Because his uh, jaw looks so weird. It and was so, but it wasn't. But it was just like the combination of his jaw and like how it was moving in relation to his upper lip, right? Right. Yes. And at the time, I was I, I was so weirded out by it because I'd completely forgotten about the whole all the reports about the CGI mustache removal thing that had come out like months ago. And I remember finding them hilarious at the time, but then it just went totally out of my head. And then I sit down to watch the movie, and that first scene. You just know that there's something off with it, and yes. it's you, you can't tell if it's intentional or like what's going on. And then when Superman shows up, spoiler alert, yeah, you know, 
if you don't already know, um, when he does show up about midway through the movie itself, there's more close-ups of him where you can clearly tell where they've been monkeying around with with his upper lip. That was like the only part where I thought it was really obvious. But yeah. after that, I could not not stare at his lips every time yeah, he appeared on totally. the screen. So I almost wish I didn't know about that bit about wiping his mustache post-production because it was the only thing I could focus on. <laughs> and for the people who uh, who weren't totally up to up to date on the background of these shots, essentially what happened was Henry Cavill finished up his principal photography for Justice League and then went off to film Mission Impossible 6 with Tom Cruise. And for that movie, his, he had to grow this like 1970s porn stash for his character. <laughs> and Paramount is the, the main studio on that movie, but when they realized at Warner Brothers that they needed to get Cavill back for some reshoots uh, to finish up Justice League, Paramount essentially said, well, he's not allowed to shave his mustache because we want him to look consistent through the whole of Mission Impossible 6. So then Warner Brothers essentially said, okay, we'll just do it in post. The classic refrain. And they had to spend something, you know, however many millions of dollars to to make it happen. And uh, Henry Cavill literally posted a photo on his Instagram of this, like, array of lights in this special 3D m- modeling studio where he was going to get his whole body scanned so they could pull off oh an effective... Oh, my God. <laughs> I wonder if the studio just stuck it to Justice League and be like, nope, you know what? I'm just going to make you spend millions just to wipe out his mustache. Because I'm sure, I'm sure making up... A fake mustache is a lot cheaper than CGIing his mustache out. Yeah, or well, well, and some very astute comic book readers also pointed out that in the comics that this portion of Su- Superman's story, you know, the, the comics that those are based on, he actually comes back from the dead with a big heavy beard. So they were like, why don't just let him grow out the beard and then shoot the Justice League stuff that way and then let him shave off the and then sides, you know, you know? Yeah, and then you know what? You can have a Joss Whedon joke in there about how he shaves. Yeah, I'm totally. Sure he would love yeah, that. Yeah, Whedon probably would have loved a scene like that. But before we go too far, here's a clip from the trailer. The others. Where are they? Arthur Curry. The Aquaman. It's on him. Organic and biomechatronic body parts. He's a cyborg. You should probably move. Barry Allen. Whoever you're looking for, it's not me. He's a Batman. And so, okay, so after that, it was started off okay, but it got really, it took too long to get going. Because you have to go to, like, you have to set up Cyborg, you have to set up Flash, you have to set up Aquaman. Yeah, all these characters that we hadn't seen before. Atlantis was boring as hell. Mira did nothing. It was very confusing how how the 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 Mera stuff yeah you know, she's played by Amber Heard and you know she's this like under undersea queen of Atlantis so I, I guess she's the queen it's not really made super yeah, clear she's the queen yeah and they just jump right into this dialogue scene that felt like it had had the first part of it totally lopped off for this <laughs> for the purposes of time so like yeah it was kind of like 
I don't remember any part of the conversation. Yeah, but they're like, but she, like, Mera and Aquaman are having this conversation, which feels like we need a whole lot more context to properly understand. And you can sort of tease out the meaning of it by the end of it. And you think about it for a while, like, something along the lines of, like, oh, you ran away from your responsibility as the king of Atlantis or whatever, and now, like, I'm in charge. And mm-hmm. then he blames his mom for something and then swims away. You know, compared to, compared to certainly the cyborg material the Aquaman backstory stuff was was pretty weak. Yes. You know, at least the cyborg stuff had, you know, he was struggling with this new identity with all these, like, robot parts that his dad had kind of fused on, into him to save him from this accident. Yeah. So, you know, there was a... You, know, there were, you could kind of follow something there. There was some logic there, but the, the Aquaman stuff was like, hey, cool, he's Aquaman. He's like a bro with a trident. Yeah, exactly. I thought of all the new characters, the Flash and Cyborg came off the best, but uh, Aquaman was really underdeveloped and i felt like kind of like flash he was there just to be a bro yeah actually the only one gag that was actually funny was when um wonder woman used the lasso truth on him yeah see that and that's where like that was the one joke and but he was the butt of that joke he wasn't the guy making the joke no no there were bits with aquaman that i actually legitimately enjoyed like like the some of the battle stuff i really liked i, I liked his uh, his contributions to like the big final battle on the russian scene mm-hmm. like the, some of that stuff was good um he had a few good one-liners here yeah. there and apparently he can like fly and jump really high. Like the powers are so ambiguous for almost every character actually. So I kind of jumping ahead, kind of appreciated the fight Superman had with the rest of the Justice League because it kind of showed you like the py- power hierarchy of the group. Yeah, where essentially. Superman was like way better than everyone else in he it was the reason why they needed him against Steppenwolf. True, yeah. The CGI for Steppenwolf was not very good. No. If only because he looked like a character from a video game. I don't know if they did motion capture or whatever, but... No, they didn't, apparently. It was just... uh... Yeah, so that's why it didn't look so real. And this is the part where I think if you did practical effects... Steppenwolf would have looked a lo- way better. Yeah, I think it would have been way more effective. I mean, like in a, you, you just think about just the the way the the film is weighted with like human performers versus CGI. Like at least all of the heroes have portions of their performance that are fully practical, but Steppenwolf is the only one that's fully CGI. Right, and you know, at the end of the day, the practical stuff is going to be more interesting to look at. You know, it's just. Uh, you know, people can tell at this point when something's been fully CGI'd and, or, and especially if it's been fully CGI'd and then there's no human performance underneath it, like in the kind of thing that Andy Serkis would do with uh, with the characters he plays. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. That part was kind of distracting, but overall, like, people said it's way better than Suicide Squad and Batman v Superman, which is great, but again, the bar has been set pretty low, right? Exactly, yeah. I mean, you can say that like for me, I was happy that Justice League didn't have any of these really annoying side plots, or that it didn't have a character like the Jesse Eisenberg Lex Luthor, who you legitimately hate every time he's on the screen. Like, there's nobody in Justice League who you you're kind of railing against, right? So it had it had that going for it, but it's also not a great improvement. Like, if you can, if all you can do is remove the bad stuff from the one that came before. You're kind of only getting to 50%, essentially. I mean, this is a 50% movie. Like, I was kind of glad I saw it on a big screen, but it didn't move the needle in any way, shape, or form for me. It was like, okay, good guy, band up, defeat bad guy, end of movie. There was, like, strangely enough for a Zack Snyder movie, there was no, like, real subplot, eh? 
No, yeah, he'd like, and maybe that was Whedon's influence, and maybe it was kind of, you know, it's it's really hard to kind of extricate what decisions Whedon made because some of them are obvious, but other ones seem like maybe they're a bit more subtle. They're definitely it definitely didn't feel like a Zack Snyder film, you know. No. The there wasn't as much slow mo. There wasn't this kind of slavish devotion to the visuals. Certainly, like less. Slightly less objectification of women. Um. You know what? I I think they objected Wonder Woman way more in this than Batman v Superman. Uh, like the constant like upskirt yeah. shots and like the whole gag, like this the sexual joke gags, it, it doesn't work. Like it's so juvenile to me now. Yeah. Oh, and well, did you see that uh, image that was being shared around on Twitter of the um, the side by side of the way the Amazon warriors are presented in Wonder Woman versus the way they are in this movie? Oh yeah, yeah, I, I did read about that. I, yeah. I kind of looked for it in the movie. I didn't think it was that obvious. Like no. there are obviously women who are like you know half naked, but I, at the same time. Um, uh, Connie Nielsen, I can't remember her character's name, but she was in like a full body armor. Yeah, that I think is that uh, a Wonder Woman's mother, uh, Hippolyta. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Her. I'm also kind of glad that I know a lot of people didn't like this part, but I'm glad that they didn't really go in depth about the mother boxes because I'm tired of movies trying to explain every single freaking thing. Just accept that it's bad. The good guys need to stop it. All right, let's move on. Yeah. Because once you start explaining things, sometimes you start writing yourself into a corner. I, I guess. But, I mean, couldn't they have come up with a stronger MacGuffin to uh, to be the thing that they're worried about? Because it's really just, like, three CGI cubes. And when you stick them together, like, the world ends, essentially. But it ends... Yeah, it, but that's based on the comics. So I may, kind of Maybe, but, but it, it does happen, to, like, that when you stick them all together, the world ends in just a slow enough fashion that the heroes can stop it well of course of course the heroes have to win i mean that maybe that is why this movie felt boring is because you knew what was going to happen you knew who the good guys and the bad guys were and at the same time it was enjoyable enough to not make you fall asleep maybe but i mean like you know the combination of a of a lame MacGuffin with a villain who literally like his dialogue sounds like they were just reusing stuff from Megatron and Transformers. Like you will feel my wrath, and this isn't possible. And- <laughs> yeah, I do agree that the villain needed a lot of work. I think the criticism for the for Steppenwolf against Steppenwolf is more valid than the Mother Boxes. I think I, I was fine with the Mother Boxes just being this weapon. Mission Impossible did this too with uh, the third one with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Do you remember with the rabbit's foot? Oh yeah, like what was it supposed to be a bi- yeah. biological weapon or something? In it that? was supposed to be some sort of yeah biological weapon, but like it, the movie didn't waste time explaining what it was, which I really appreciated because then you get into all sorts of exposition heavy material, and so a lot of times it doesn't really make any sense. It just doesn't further the story. Sure, yeah, and it, it kind of forces you to have a few too many walk-and-talk exposition scenes. And yeah. Like, to its credit, this movie, you know, when it does when it does finally set everything up and after that first, I don't know, 45 minutes, it, it keeps going at, at a good clip. And, you know, the two-hour yes. two runtime, I appreciate it. I mean, I would have much preferred to have two hours of this versus two and a half hours of this because I think if it had stretched to that length... I would have hated it a lot more. <laughs> yeah, even yeah. if even if all the material had been the same quality overall. Yeah, and I mean, was there really thirty minutes of extra material to to be had anyway? I I, I don't feel like there's any part that they could really expand on that would have made. Them no, up. no, they would have had to insert 
you know, they would have had to insert like more secondary villains. Yeah, or they would have needed to do something else with Lois Lane, like have her actually have her actually be a journalist. Oh my god! And by the way, like Lois's Lois Lane's hair was definitely color corrected, right? It looked really unnatural. Uh, yeah, well, I wasn't paying much attention, but yeah. And also, the scenes where they're in Kansas and they had like that vanilla sky background, I thought that was really poorly done. Because tonally, it wasn't consistent with the rest of the movie. So if you watch Man of Steel, like, everything's almost a painting-like, so I get it. But for this one, you got the CGI red in the final battle, and then you have, like, the vanilla sky, and then you have, like, the darkness and rain with Cyborg and Batman, and it just doesn't really mesh that well together. And also because they don't really stick to one spot, right? So they, they go to, like, Atlantis for, like, what? couple scenes and that's it they go to the wonder woman's place for like a scene or two and that's it and i feel like if they had maybe not cut out those scenes but just stuck to a few fewer locations it might have been a little tighter but that's just me i i didn't mind it i mean i'm probably gonna watch it again when it comes out on home video just to see if i can pick up anything but there was enough in there that you know kept me entertained for two hours it was it was like what out of five maybe like a two and a half a three you know it's not that bad but it's not that great uh, yeah yeah out of five yeah two and a half like a like a it's pretty pretty even 50 percent, i would say and like yeah something something along those lines right yeah i i think i wrote somewhere like on, on the review that's up on the site uh i said something to the effect of like it's not rage inducing like the previous movies were um so that that's a good thing um, yes but you should still kind of like I don't know. I I would still prefer to be raving about it, you know, in the way that I was raving about Thor Ragnarok. I mean, it's, so it's kind of disappointing, even though the movie itself isn't disappointing. The overall effect of it, you know, there we still don't get a sense of like of where this franchise is even going. Other than that kind of post credit stinger with Lex Luthor and uh, Deathstroke, oh, Sl- Slade Wilson, uh, which you know d- does a little bit to kind of give you a sense of where the franchise is going on a plot level. I mean, I what I'm hoping for is that they just they finally make a clean break from the Snyder stuff and they just bring in somebody different, you know, just uh, not a Joss Whedon, not a Zack Snyder, not somebody who give it to somebody who hasn't done a superhero film before, like Patty Jenkins did on Wonder Woman and just see what they can do. I did appreciate the sort of like the continuation where it was clearly a sequel uh, to Batman v Superman, where things in that movie had a clear effect on the events of this film. I actually thought Ben Affleck was a good Bruce Wayne. Jury is out on whether he's a good Batman or not. I still kind of prefer Michael Keaton. But I think Ben Affleck was a, is probably the best Bruce Wayne, actually, on screen. I did kind of lament the fact that we didn't get to see Alfred do a whole lot or Commissioner Gordon. Yeah, or any of the secondary characters. Yeah, I mean, they they just didn't have enough time, right? I don't really find fault with Batman bringing back Superman. I think that was always the final solution. The one thing that made me laugh, though, was Batman's contingency plan, and it was Lois Lane stepping out of the car. Um, That's kind of like straight from the comics and uh, cartoons where... Superman's only real weakness is Lois Lane, but I just kind of laughed 
because it was a little too cheesy for me. Well, I was impressed that, that she got there as quickly as she did. I, I know, mean, right? It's like, what did Batman do? Like, did she like did he like kidnap her? Was she just like waiting in the police car until they were done fighting? Like, they they pretty much tore down like half a city block before she stepped out, right? So I thought that was really funny. Prior, slightly prior to that scene, like before they actually wake Superman up, I'm still impressed that uh, on how they settled on the way that they were going to wake Superman up because <laughs> yeah, it's so arbitrary. They show up in this in this Kryptonian place and they take like one look around and they're like, they're like, hmm, we can't put the the mother box in the goo because it doesn't have enough power. So let's get the Flash to run and touch the box at the exact same time. And I'm just like, you just added $50 million to a budget for a sequence that really doesn't need to be done. Yeah, like, but I would, I wanted like maybe one more line and like how they, how they settled on that over top of just like putting the mother box in the goo and then just chalking it. Like, why did it have to be timed so specifically? It's all sciencey and complicated with big words and who cares? I suppose, but <laughs> the movie yeah, obviously the movie obviously doesn't take time to explain these things, which I give them credit for. Actually, I suppose, yeah. I mean, it would maybe hearing the explanation would be stupider, but yes, um, yeah. <laughs> more more often than not, yes. Um, I actually missed the the post credit scene, although I like I kind of heard about it, but I forgot. And after the movie, I just kind of left because I wanted to get out of there. Right. I did hear the post credit scene involves a Lex Luthor escaping prison it does except not in it's not like you're seeing some great prison escape or something basically they just you know they open up the cells in wherever it was that luther was being held and uh this guy with a shaved head is seen from behind and the the guy comes up to him and he's like come on luther and then he turns the guy around and it's not luther it's just a body double and then uh then they cut to deathstroke in full like orange and black armor driving a a boat out to this massive super yacht yeah and and i was uh, kind of he just sort of walks up to Luther, and then they're like, maybe we need a league of our own. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what Lex Luthor does in every single comic iteration, eh? Like, he just forms this, like, super team, and he tries to go fight the Justice League. I was a little disappointed to not see that scene, because I had thought that Joe Joe Manganiello, whatever his name is, I thought that movie with him and Batman was scrapped. Or am I totally wrong? Well, maybe it's not. I mean, it's it's entirely possible that... I know. If he's in there, he's obviously going to be in the sequel. It's entirely possible that he's still going to be the main antagonist of the, the solo Batman movie that Matt Reeves is working on. Which Ben Affleck probably won't do. Yeah, I mean, uh, but where do these rumors keep coming from? Because it feels like they, they pop up every three months and it's like, he's not happy in the role and he's going to quit and then he doesn't quit. Like, do you think he really had fun playing Batman? I highly doubt it. I, I just don't think superheroes is his genre. And he's always come out in public and said, you know what, this really isn't for me. I think he does it for the money and the fame, but I think he realizes that these movies aren't exactly intelligent and it's not really his thing. He makes really intelligent movies. He does, yeah. As a director, I, I really like his the stuff that he directs, um, you know, and, and he even has a role in writing them. So, I mean, it speaks to his... You know, he's he's definitely a talented filmmaker, but he um, just might be one of those people that just doesn't get the superhero thing. Yeah, or maybe he just he sees through the like the fakeness or the Hollywoodness of it, you know, or the fact that it's a money machine for the studio or something. You know, maybe it's a yeah, and I'm sure that's why a lot of these people do. True, yeah. So he could be uh, it, maybe his heart's not in it in the same way that like Gal Gadot seems to seems to believe a little bit more in 
the role of her character in the the broader ecosystem or whatever. Right. The role is easier to play if you get good reviews for your movie, right? <laughs> yeah. So I um, mean, um, he maybe have hated hated Daredevil because it was a really shit movie, or maybe he would have really liked playing Daredevil if it was a really good movie. I just think that there is some truth to the fact that he just doesn't want to play Batman anymore. Um, I just don't think it's his thing. And it's not like he needs a franchise tentpole. Like he's, he's a bigger name in Batman than Batman in Hollywood circles, right? Like uh, he could probably do any movie he wanted. Oh yeah. I, I doubt he would, um, I doubt he would have any trouble financing his next project if he, if he tried. It would just really bug me if they recast him in the middle of this franchise. Cause I like the consistency. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think, I think all film fans want want some sort of consistency there you know at least in the way that like christian bale saw it through to the to the end of of his three films and kind of let it go yeah and i kind of feel like sometimes christian bale kind of mailed it in in the third movie i didn't feel the same intensity as the dark knight or batman begins that's also part of the of the the point that that character is at too at that at that point you know i think he was he was being intentional about that sure yeah that's true i mean i as far as DC standards go, I thought Justice League was was all right. It was fine. Um, yeah, didn't blow I mean, my there's only, off. There, there's only five films in the Pantheon so far. Uh, I, so. And I guess if it, it depends if you're like a negative or a positive person. So if you're a positive person, you'll probably be like, well, I'm glad Justice League set a new standard for DC. And if you're a negative person, you're more like, well, Justice League was just more of the same. I really hope they really improve because at this rate, they're really, really going to run this franchise into the ground. Yeah. But are they, though? Because, like, I don't know. People say that they're going to run the franchise into the ground, but the franchise is going to keep going. You know, they... Well, because it makes tons of money. Yeah. Or, or, well, except it isn't really because apparently the box office this weekend was uh, a lot lower than people expected. Yeah. Well, we'll have to see because next weekend is Thanksgiving, right? And... True. And Justice yeah. League, so it may pick yeah, up. Yeah, and we'll see how it does internationally. Because this is a movie that internationally would draw a lot of viewers because you don't need to be like a comic book person to know who Batman and Superman are. Like, that's how iconic they are. And it's a shame that Marvel's characters have become more iconic in film than DC's like Batman and Superman. Okay, one thing I wanted to ask you about that Jesse Eisenberg post credit scene. Was Jesse Eisenberg still doing his stupid Lex Luthor interpretation? No, well, he was. Thank uh, he, God. He like granted his appearance there is very short, but right compared to other scenes where he has hair in uh, Batman v Superman, um, right? It, it's almost like losing the hair is kind of like he's tossed off that weird schizoid impression that he was doing in the last one. Okay, he was just very. Okay. So he heard his critics loud and clear. <laughs> maybe or maybe he didn't have enough time to to, to jump into the, the the routine. But like he, I it was a very it was a very like um, even keel line reading of the few things that he had to say. Like he he was you know he seemed he seemed like more confident in a traditional way than just like eh. <laughs> um, that's a yeah whatever that was he to sum it up. <laughs> Yeah, because I mean that's uh, in my head. That's that that like vocal tick thing is pretty much how I remember Eisenberg's performance. It's and like he talked a lot with his hands too. Yeah, and he was like you know hitting people or like wiggling his fingers around. Yeah, and peeing in jars. Ugh. Yeah, his whole subplot with that senator character played by Holly Hunter like should be forgotten. You know, every time I I rewatch clips from it, I get angry. Yeah, I mean it made more sense in the director's cut, but yeah, I kind of agree that it. 
Batman v Superman went in five, six different directions and four of which they didn't need to go under, go yeah. to. Yeah. Um, but let's change gears a little bit into... Uh, yeah, let's change gears. <laughs> <laughs> into the uh, the TV world with uh, this big announcement of the Lord of the Rings streaming series from Amazon. Which is misleading because it's not actually based on the Lord of the Rings books. Exactly, yeah. There was a little bit of... Uh, I, I spoke to a few people who had seen like the headline and then they were like, oh, they're remaking Lord of the Rings. And I was like, no, not, no, they're not. not really. That, that's how that's... That, that's kind of like the the Cliff's Notes version of what's happening, but it's, you know, what's what's really being done is a prequel series yes. uh, about characters that they haven't highlighted yet. They haven't said exactly whether it's going to be characters we've, we're already acquainted with or if they're going to put the, the spotlight on other characters who are, like, connected in a, like, a notional way, sort of like they did with Rogue One and the Star Wars characters. So is it going to be a Rogue One thing? Is it going to be a prequel with like young Aragorn or something? Like, I think it's, I think we're still in very, very early days. Um, I, last I heard, they were still in the process of like hiring a writer. So isn't it going to be based on stories from the uh, Cimmerillion, that book? No, I don't think so. I, well, I hope not. No? I hope oh. not because. Why not? Well, have you read the Cimmerillion? I couldn't get past it. <laughs> Yeah, see, it's... But I know it's very dense. Well, it's dense, and, like, the thing with the Silmarillion is the... It's been a long time since I read it, too, but, like, uh, Christopher Tolkien, uh, the son of J.R.R. Tolkien, went on a rant when the original Lord of the Rings films came out between 2001 and 2003, and he said that he hated the way that his father's books had been portrayed and that they'd been turned into an action film for 15 to 25-year-olds, I believe was the quote. But even though I, I really disagree with him because I feel like there was more to those movies than just the action stuff... Uh-huh. It's also the best way to sell Lord of the Rings to my mainstream audience. You know, to focus on those battles, to to have those big epic action scenes with thousands of extras, that's kind of how you pull the average person in so that they're willing to put up with, you know, the longer scenes where they're talking in Elvish or they're, you know, they're getting into the, you know, the more ethereal gods and monsters kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And the Silmarillion is definitely leaning heavier to the latter there. You know, it's more about this quest to get this magical set of jewels back from a bad guy who's even worse than Sauron in Lord of the Rings. He's sort of like Sauron's boss. And there's more of a classical kind of Romeo and Juliet style forbidden love thing, more like the Aragorn, <laughs> Aragorn and Arwen thing. But it's like the key focus of the the story. There's no like fellowship with like multiple characters with their own little relationships in between it's all about that kind of romantic thing at the center of it you don't have any hobbits you don't have any kind of charming shire jokes about hobbits always being hungry and stuff there's none of that it's way more kind of goes back to the kind of stuff that tolkien was writing about as an academic back in the 30s and 40s, right? Do you think it's going to be successful? I mean it totally depends on what it's based on. If it's based on the Silmarillion, it's more of a toss-up. Uh, it might find an audience, okay. Um, but if it builds in a little bit more of the Lord of the Rings stuff that we're already familiar with, then yeah, I think it could it could hit big because especially with Game of Thrones winding down and a little bit more uncertainty about what the spinoff shows are going to be like right. for that. This feels they paid a lot of money, right? Like it was like two hundred fifty million or something, right? Just for the rights, they just wanted to lock down the rights and have as much creative control as they as they could get. Right, so there's like a billion different directions they could go with it. it. I agree it depends on which direction they take. I just think this is a huge, huge risk for Amazon 
not that you know if it fails they would go no, bankrupt no. or anything because you know you know this, they're too big of a company but this is a huge gamble like outside of venturing into theaters this is their big their first big ip isn't it well, I mean, they they have lots of shows that are doing well on their own, like American Gods or the the t- or the Top Gear thing, or but the, like the closest they have is the Tick in terms of intellectual property that they've bought from someone else. No, because they they own American Gods outright, and for Neil Gaiman fans, that's a big deal. Okay, and then they've right. got also got some smaller shows that they've that they've done. You know how Amazon does the the pilot uh, contest essentially, where they make a bunch of pilots and then they submit them for like audience voting i did not know this yeah it's apparently i don't know if they how often they do it now but when they first got prime uh, video or instant videos they call it in some markets off the ground their approach was to film a whole bunch of pilots like 20 25 pilots and then put them out for people to watch and then collect user votes and that would determine which pilots make it through to a season i see okay oh that's interesting it's pretty interesting actually the things that have come out of that process are unique IPs, to answer your question. So they, they do have control of these smaller things, but none of those shows have really achieved a kind of like market penetration the way that Netflix's original content has. Not right, yet. Right. Well, original content on IPs are different. Um, IPs you really have to pay through the nose for, especially for Lord of the Rings. I think they're trying to capitalize on this fervor of like medieval fantasy Yep, genre that's that's kind of been going around, but I mean, if you think about it, uh, Lord Game of Thrones is the one high profile one, but we've also had Vikings. We've also had Netflix has got one uh, that's bait that's sort of like a ripoff of Vikings called The Last Kingdom. Right, right, and there's uh there's a couple shows too. Uh, I think one's called Frontier. It's about the fur trade, which isn't really like a medieval fantasy, but it's very much in the similar tone. No, and it's but it's got Jason Momoa in the star yes. role, so yes, uh, you know people recognize him from uh, Game of Thrones, and that's a Canadian yeah. one, so yes, go Canada, I guess. Yeah, uh, have you seen it? No, but I know a bunch of people who work on it. Oh, really? I've always wanted. I've always been curious about that show. I think they shot a, a lot of it in Newfoundland, where I'm from. So uh, a lot of the a lot of the people I know from like the uh, the theater, uh, the community theater stuff that I used to do when I lived there, uh, they uh-huh. they ended up getting jobs as like production assistants and assistant directors and stuff. So it's it's been a big deal for the film industry in that province. But cool, uh, yeah, they they're into a second season now, so it seems like right. it's uh, it's finding an audience. I'm sure it has an audience. I mean, I would love to see. It. I just. I'm just way behind on everything else. But yeah, for this uh, for this streaming thing, like uh, yeah, it's like you said, it's a big risk, but it could very well be a big risk that really forces people to take Amazon streaming services uh, seriously. I don't think anyone's really not taking them seriously, but this definitely puts them at the forefront. Like this is their big IP that they can trot out as their trump card, as their big money maker. Yeah, like the thing that pe- makes people really want to actually sign up for Prime and use their the, use the instant video side of Prime. Yeah, I have Prime and I actually don't watch Amazon Prime Video that often. Exactly. Yeah, like I just default to Netflix. It's, yeah, and that's what I mean. Like they, it, it maybe maybe it's not correct to to say that people aren't taking them seriously, but to kind of be in that that area where you legitimately can't decide what you want to watch when you've got a few hours to kill. Do you want to watch? Netflix, or do you want to watch Amazon? Yeah, or in the future, Disney, um, CBS, uh, Hulu, CBS all access. Um, yeah, all sorts of streaming sites that everyone's—it's just become a giant rat race. That's what it's become. 
Now, one thing that, and this is kind of, this is a little bit technical, but that I wish Amazon would fix for their Canadian viewers would be making a app available to watch their library on anything other than a computer. You can't watch it on an iPad or anything? Well, you can watch it on an iPad, but like what I want is like a set-top box app, like for Apple TV or Nvidia Shield or Roku, um, because right now, right now you have to you can watch it off of like an app that's built into like a smart TV. Yeah, I mean that's the same 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 idea. You sort of, but like there's there's certain really popular platforms that they haven't uh, released their app for yet, and it's really frustrating for me. So I. Uh, it just makes it makes it that much harder for me to sit down and watch it because my like Netflix works perfectly on more devices. It seems. Well, yeah, my nightmare is to have like three different streaming boxes. Yeah, exactly. Th- that's like my my worst nightmare. I want everything to be on one box. Yeah. So like for me, I can watch Netflix and a whole bunch of other content. Uh, my main thing is is a Roku box, but the only device that I have other than my I guess my computer or my smartphone. Uh, which, you know, those aren't the best kind of viewing experiences, would be the uh, smart TV app, which doesn't have the same kind of performance. And, you know, it's not plugged into the sound system correctly. So it's just a it's a tech nightmare. And it uh, drives me crazy and just makes it so that I delay watching Amazon stuff a lot longer than I should. Oh, do you have Roku? Yeah. How do you like it? I mean, I got into the Roku thing like four years ago. So I've been a like, that's how I've always watched Netflix is on a Roku. Right. And at the time when Roku came out, it was probably the fastest box on the market. Mm-hmm. It had like the... F- it's too competitive now. Yeah. I mean, now there's like a million different ways to... to there are a million different types of set-top boxes and all of them have like pretty similar specs. They they all like queue up Netflix yeah. at the same speed and they don't have any lagging issues and, you know, the menu menus look good. But no, back when I got into, got my Roku, it was like the, t- the king of the market. And some for some reason, Amazon doesn't support it right now so at least in canada well because they're competitors well no because roku doesn't have uh, have their own original content no but isn't amazon thinking about like having their own streaming hardware oh you're yeah you're thinking of the kindle fire tv yeah yeah i I guess that's true yeah they're they're gonna be less likely to yeah i mean they're competitors like i don't know if you know this but roku is like they they went public less than a month ago a couple weeks ago even and i've always wondered how they were gonna do it because roku Yes, it's an internet business, but their main thing is still selling their hardware, right? True, yeah. And hardware is just, it's not a business. Well, it's a very difficult business to do now because people don't like buying hardware anymore. No, exactly. They want, um, like, everything to work on whatever they have already. Well, and they, yeah, they want to be able to buy, like, a smart TV that has all the apps built in. Yeah. And even if you buy Blu ray players now, some of them have the apps built in. Yeah, that's true too. Like the people don't want that extra box to plug in, but I just happen to be in that that category where I got a set top box when they were still necessary. Right. Right. Fair enough. I've always had my PlayStation, so I always use that instead. Same idea. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. 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 Um, no, but like I think whenever I do buy a new set top box, I'm obviously going to make the decision based on like how many services are available to it. Yeah, and you know, like I have a feeling it's going to turn out where it's going to be so competitive that they're not going to be willing to collaborate. So you're going to have to end up buying like two or three different set of boxes to get the, the uh, streaming services you want. Oh, well, I mean, if that's the case, I'm just not going to <laughs> not going to do it at all. <laughs> I just feel like that's the way it's going because... It, it, it may, well, maybe, but that's stupid. Um, but let's... Uh, uh, we, we should jump into that Tarantino stuff uh, because... 
Right. He's uh, he's been kind of dancing around the uh, pre-production for his ninth movie past couple of weeks. His final movie, right? No, he claims he's going to do one more after this one. Oh, okay. So it's not his final movie. No. So the I think he he was always about this idea of like he believes that directors are best when they get out while the getting is good. And they don't kind of decline into some sort of decrepit, like past their prime. Tell that to Woody Allen, huh? Yeah, tell that to Woody, or Ridley Scott. Like, I mean, <laughs> oh uh, well, you know, Ridley Scott. Uh, maybe he's still really good at building worlds. But I agree, his his films recently have not. Been well, The Martian great. was good. Yes, The Martian was good, but I mean, the Alien franchise. Yeah. Okay. But and but anyways, like the. Yes, like there's anyways. there's plenty there's plenty of uh, directors who have been able to make great movies in their their later years like when even when they get up into like 20 or 25 movies some people are still making great movies and Tarantino I guess is afraid that he'll be on the losing side of that equation so he's decided he's only going to make 10 and this brings him up to number 9 that he's getting started on now so in the fallout from the whole Harvey Weinstein being kicked out of the Weinstein company uh, obviously Tarantino doesn't want to touch the Weinstein company with a 10-foot pole. So he's been shopping his ninth movie around Hollywood. And of course, all of the major studios want a chance at it. Yeah. Uh, did you hear about what Warner Brothers was doing for uh, uh, their like presentation to try to convince Tarantino to bring the movie to them? No, what they do? It was a, the report I read. I think it was a Hollywood Reporter. They said that... Warner Brothers literally devoted a portion of their back lot and they dressed it up in like a 1960s kind of uh, look and feel and wined and dined Tarantino and tried to make him feel like, you know, they got him and they could be the best partner to make this ninth movie uh, come to life, which seems I often forget that film studios will make those kind of elaborate set dressed kind of presentations oh of course Um, it's all about recruiting right it's all about doing business so they uh they obviously tried to make him as comfortable as possible and the reason they went with the 1960s vibe was because apparently this ninth movie will have something to do with the manson family murders oh yes okay i did hear about this the fact that it's about the manson family murders makes me not want to watch it ever just because it's going to be like super gory? No, not because it's super gory. Because the story of the Manson family murders itself is gruesome and I don't ever want to revisit it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You got a point. Like, I'm not a horror movie fan already. Gore doesn't bother me a whole lot. I just, I feel like sometimes it's not very tastefully done. Like, it's just there to shock you. Mm, yeah. And I have, that's my sort of hesitation about this sort of film is that tarantino can be quite exploitative with his violence oh yeah that's like his stock and trade basically. yeah that's his thing right and i just don't think the manson family murders for me is an appropriate topic because if you read into the murders it's it's horrifying it's terrible oh yeah there's a reason why they've gone down in history as being one of the the worst series of yeah uh, like, murders ever you know yeah like, like having read the whole thing and like having seen even some photos like oh no no thank you yeah. Now, I mean, it's it's worth pointing out that uh, Tarantino has never explicitly confirmed that that's what the movie's about. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Yes. There's other people who are suggesting that the um, the Manson family murders is kind of like a an entry point into this movie, and it may have more to do with just the general kind of uh, culture that was going on in the Holly in the Hollywood area 
uh, in that late 60s time period. So it may just like maybe the Manson murders will actually just be a background thing and there'll be a, well, a different so. a different story. Um, but he's he's apparently been meeting with a lot of major players. He wants to have DiCaprio come back. He wants to uh, bring on Tom Cruise, possibly. Maybe all of these people he's meeting with, he may want to bring them all in in this like absolutely A-list studded piece of work. I don't know, like, I after The Hateful Eight, I don't know whether I even want to watch this thing just just on the basis of, like, the kind of filmmaker that Tarantino has become. Right. What what didn't you like about The Hateful Eight? I just felt like he was, he was, uh, it was like masturbatory, essentially. <laughs> he was... All his films tend to do that, though. No, but this was especially bad because he, like... Some people were falling all over themselves to praise like the beautiful Ennio Morricone score and how the uh, the film opens up with these beautiful crane shots of lands- frozen landscapes as all the characters mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. converge mm-hmm. in this log cabin. But for me, like the fact that he he spends like the first ten minutes with no dialogue, just setting up all these nature shots and using like these crazy different retro fonts for every single title card. It just felt like he was uh, at the mercy of his worst impulses as a filmmaker. He wasn't, there was no restraint at all. He wasn't being, he wasn't like putting in cool little retro touches to add flavor. He was kind of just, it was like dumping in a giant box of salt. Other than Pulp Fiction, I don't think he shows any restraint at all in any of his films. Yeah, but like think think about like Inglorious Bastards versus Django Unchained, for example. Yes. Right? Like in, for me, Inglorious Bastards works better as a end-to-end experience than Django Unchained, which felt like it was Yes more about the torture and more about the lingering shots of like a guy being used as like a human shield while like hundreds of bullets get shot at Django played by Jamie Foxx and there's just fountains of blood going off everywhere and it just goes on and on and on and on. That was my gripe with Django Unchained. Everything up until the final shoot shootout at the farmhouse was good. I, I kind of have a similar criticism about uh, Hateful Eight. I didn't mind the 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 first 10 minutes where it really got it was slow to get moving. I actually didn't mind that. What I did mind was the violence. Well, yeah, because it, it concludes I think with... at times it was just too much, yeah. I thought the score was incredible, yeah. Oh, the score was great. Like, uh, Morricone deserved to win the Oscar that year for that. I have no quibble with that, but but it was the, you know, people people were just falling all People over. getting shot in the crotch, things getting sliced off, yeah. Yeah, Channing Tatum comes up from a hole in the floor to, like, surprise people, and then he gets his head exploded by a shotgun, and then his brains go all over the head, the face of uh, his character's sister, played by uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, and she's cackling, and she's got her teeth broken in by Kurt Russell, yeah. and she's just covered in brain matter and blood, and you're like, enough, right? Like, it just... it. it he was still trying to get a shock value out of violence that he had just been drenching us in for three hours. Do you think he's going for shock value though? Or do you think that he actually believes that what he's doing is artistic? I I don't know. I have a hard time getting into that guy's head <laughs> because I, I think they're, they're two separate things. Like I think there there's violence that is meant to be artistic as he did in Inglorious bastards, which I thought was way better. And then there's violence where it's just meant to shock you. Kind of like in slasher films, yeah. Where it's just it's meant to just shock you and nothing else. Well, I think it's a in the case of Hateful Eight, it's a it's a mix of both. Like obviously, he's he is being very artful, I guess, in the way he's doing it. Yeah, it is supposed to kind of yeah. He he toes that edge or that line. Yeah, and just for me, he just he tipped over way too far 
on the side of on the side of it being excessive and uh, <laughs> and just lost me right, right? I mean like yeah, I well, wanted... he's known for that right the excessiveness he's known for it yeah I just wanted I wanted to like it because there was a lot of great performances in it you know obviously people praise him for the dialogue and all this but yeah or even like I also think about the scene where. Samuel Jackson is taunting the Bruce Dern character and talking about like uh, driving the the guy's son out in the snow naked and then like forcing uh, forcing the son to like give Samuel Jackson a blowjob and and all this stuff and then just shooting the guy like it just it, it was just mm-hmm. the scene went on and on and on and it was just subjecting this character to more and more pain and torture and you're just like all right okay I get it yes uh, there's a bit of torture porn in there for sure yeah. So all of that to say that the the ninth film, like it's really going to depend for me on the subject matter, like what part of that late 60s thing he actually decides on. What's if he decides to bring in some new people that he hasn't worked with before that might bring me around. I don't know. Well, we'll just have to see what he comes up with. Yeah, and then the, the only other thing that kind of caught my eye this week was uh, the whole Denis Villeneuve talking about the pre-production on Dune. I don't know if you've been... Uh, did you see any of uh, any of uh, Villeneuve's comments on that? I kind of skimmed headlines. Um, something about him saying it's not going to be like the previous Dune. Yeah, or something like yeah. that. Which is kind of like a you know some people tried to m- make it sound like he was dissing David Lynch for Lynch's 1984 version with uh, no, but Kyle MacLachlan and Sting. But like he wasn't really. He was essentially saying that uh, he's just going to go right back to the original novel and kind of do a square one adaptation yeah because david lynch is out there yeah unless you are david lynch it can be difficult to understand what he's trying to go for sometimes (laughs) not that he's not brilliant in his own way no yeah but i think he he's david lynch is the kind of filmmaker who inspires very hardcore fans and probably an equal equal number if not a greater number of people who are just like one's enough for me like i don't understand (laughs) yeah or just people who are like i don't get it Actually, in a related note to the whole David Lynch thing, uh, apparently the, there are rumors that we're going to get a season four of uh, Twin Peaks. Oh, wow. David Lynch hasn't said anything about it. It's all been based on interviews with Mark Frost, the other uh, producer, writer, uh, partner. Sure. If that does happen, uh, I'd, be, I'd be pretty excited. I don't know. The uh, I like the way they finished it. I'd be totally... I, I can't call myself a Lynch fanboy, but... Yeah, me neither. I appreciated what he did with the end of Twin Peaks The Return enough that... I'd be fine if they left it as is, but I'd be equally as interested if they did decide to go back and do a season four. Uh, so it's, it's a bit weird in that way. But yeah, what whatever Villeneuve brings to the table with Dune, like uh, if he implies his Blade Runner 2049 approach, then I'm all for it. Like uh, everything I've heard about Dune, like from skimming synopses of the novels to uh, the... Did you ever see um, that documentary Jodorowsky's Dune? No. It basically talked about how uh, this crazy Chilean filmmaker, Alejandro Jodorowsky, tried to make Dune back in like the, before uh, David Lynch got involved, like late 70s, early 80s. Sure. And this guy, like Jodorowsky, has made some of the weirdest art films on the face of the (laughs) earth. Uh, Big like... Three that he made one called El Topo and another one called uh, The Holy Mountain, neither of which I've seen in their entirety, but I've seen clips from them. And we're talking some really depraved crap, right? Oh, uh, God. 
like you, extended scenes of like Yodorowsky himself playing the lead character riding around on a horse naked and like torturing <laughs> torturing children and like really weird stuff. Okay. So this guy Yodorowsky tried to make a version of Dune mm-hmm. and he hired H.R. Geiger who made the original alien designs for Ridley Scott's Alien mm-hmm. to yep. do a, uh, to yep. do a lot of the set design and character and ship spaceship design for his version of Dune and he even tried to bring in uh, Salvador Dali to play a emperor character right and there was just so many stories about like how this crazy thing tried to get off the ground and like it was being made back at a time where like sci-fi really wasn't being taken seriously by the industry like we were still like in the like around the time of like the first star wars so people weren't really sure what this whole thing was about so i don't know there's there's a kind of oral history about dune and people who try to make movies about it that uh i don't know i'm i'm really curious to see what uh, what villeneuve does with it i'm i'm interested too i've never been like a dune fan but i'm a big denis villeneuve fan yeah so are you as sad as i am that uh, 2049 is still a box office disappointment I didn't see the foreign numbers. How'd they do? It was like really bad. Like it, I think the producers are going to take like an $80 million wash on it. Oh, really? Actually, you know what? I had the same conversation with my mom. Sci-fi generally just doesn't sell well in Asia because they don't have the same reverence towards aliens and UFO in their pop culture. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, when's the last time you saw a sci-fi Asian film? I mean, but don't they like the Godzilla films often have aliens in them? No, but that's kaiju. That's different, right? No, but like when, but like Godzilla goes to like other planets and then there's like, he fights aliens. Right. Okay. Yes. I mean, that's for, but I, but I see what you mean. Like, yeah, like I, I can see how between the Chinese market and the Japanese market, like they're, they don't make as many that I've heard of. No, but like, there's no movie in their pop culture, uh, memory of something like E.T. or Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Right. right. Like for them, science fiction isn't exactly their forte. If anything, it's always about like uh, like weird Chinese zombies or like weird creatures and and gods and and yeah, you know that kind of thing. But not sci-fi, not going out into space and all that stuff. Something like Blade Runner, obviously, I think is a tougher sell because they don't ask the same questions about sci-fi or relation to sci-fi as we do. Mm, okay. Um, Maybe down the future, because they're all into AI now, artificial intelligence. That's all they're doing right now in, in Asia, in China especially. So we'll see. Um, I did go see Blade Runner the second time, though. Oh, yeah? Yeah, unfortunately not on IMAX, but at the it was still as enjoyable for me because I'm a big Blade Runner fan, but I do understand why it's a tough sell. It, it does feel really long, and if you not familiar with some of the concepts that are in Blade Runner, the original one. The second one doesn't seem as deep. Yeah, okay. Um, certain questions in the in 2049 just aren't as profound as if you know kind of like the background and the controversies behind it. Yeah, I can sort of see that. I also wonder too, like, what was the impact of word of mouth with Blade Runner, right? Because Right. And let's not forget the first Blade Runner was a commercial flop too. True, yeah. But like you think about... How how much of an impact are you going to get from fans of Blade Runner who obviously go to see it like in the first few weekends, and then then the average moviegoers who are also going probably you know they're just like oh Blade Runner I like Ryan Gosling or I like Harrison Ford and then they they come out of it and then they tell their friends eh, it was kind of long you know and for like mm-hmm. you know for some people that's as much as they're going to engage with a movie 
and that's what they're going to tell their friends and then the friends will be less likely to go see it and that i don't know i feel like i mean not, not that i study audience numbers closely enough to really be sure but i don't know that i almost have an instinct that that might have had an impact here yeah whereas a sci-fi movie like thor ragnarok which admittedly is part of a of a much more well-known franchise, uh, you're going to get a lot more word of mouth driving people to that. And as a result, they have a gigantic box office for that. Yeah. I wouldn't even count Thor Ragnarok as sci-fi, though. No, I mean, it's it's not like it has any kind of, like, save the earth kind of stuff in it. No, but it's... I, I totally think comic book movie or comic book adaptation is a genre of its own now. Yeah, okay, fine. I think it's separated itself far enough because it's got elements of different things, right? So I feel like it's kind of its own genre now because we've had so many movies and I think there is a formula that you can kind of define it as. Yeah, Blade Runner, $250 million worldwide against a budget of $150 million, but those budget numbers do not include marketing and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where that's where they the yeah lies. yeah. And you know what? Chris Hemsworth is probably an easier sell than Ryan Gosling. Um, I don't think Ryan Gosling has a big international following, <laughs> to be honest. Oh, I I could not uh, I could not confirm either way. <laughs> yeah, I I go to Asia and people know Thor and the Avengers, and they're like, "What's Blade Runner? Who's Ryan Gosling?" You oh, know? that's too bad. <laughs> I will say that I still have lines from uh, Thor Ragnarok bouncing around in my head like two weeks later. I'd... Really? I've been planning to see it again. Like some like f- just like favorite stuff like I've been falling for 30 minutes. <laughs> and I, I just want to see uh, Taika Waititi's character again. <laughs> yeah, the Korg guy. Yeah, like, Korg is uh, hilarious. Like, <laughs> with, the, uh, with the prison where they're being kept. Yeah, it's yeah. like, it's a circle, but it's a freaky circle. <laughs> yeah. The rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> joke or the uh the bug guy who's like this is my friend he has blades for arms yeah (laughs) yeah um i do want to see it again because the first time i saw it and i saw in a little small theater and so the sound wasn't very good so i i do want to see it with bigger sound and non-3d so oh yeah yeah, all but both both noble pursuits. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that about does it for this episode. Head on over to kinetoscope.ca. We've got a couple more reviews up for you, including one for Justice League and another for Murder on the Orient Express, which we haven't talked about on the podcast yet, but uh, it's a new uh, detective uh, 1930s European kind of plush movie that, uh, that I checked out uh, about a week ago, so uh, have a look for that. But until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.